So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at um, Isaiah and seeing the prophetic declarations of 700 years prior to Christ being born. The prophet Isaiah in his poems declared the beauty of Christ. You know, it's one of the things that we really need to realise that to understand the, the scripture, Christ is central. You know, it's, and, and, you know, I've preached on this earlier in the year and, and can do so. It's not about a flat book, if you like, that everything's the same. That's really a mountain, if you like, climbing to the, the apex, and the apex is Jesus. And so the understanding, you, you need to read the Old Testament through the eyes or the, through the filter of Jesus and understanding that, that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming one, to Jesus. And uh, that's the whole, really, the story. It's God's unfolding plan. And so, as I said, over the last few weeks, we've been, been unwrapping Christmas in Isaiah. So today, I just want to do something a little bit different, and we want to start in Micah. Uh, oh, yeah, getting very daring. But you, Bethlehem, that place, though you are only a small village of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, whose origin is from the, of old, from ancient days. Now, Micah, this time, he was an 8th century prophet, Micah of Moresheth. And in this, this prophecy, he says that Bethlehem is going to be a place where a new king of the Jews will be born. Now, Bethlehem, we know it today, obviously, as a birthplace, but it was actually a small village in those days. It's about 10 kilometers south of Jerusalem. And um, Bethlehem, its, its importance was that 300 years prior to this prophecy, King David had been born there. And that had been their kind of glory days, you know. You went into the local restaurant, there was a picture of David. Oh, yeah, he was born here. That's what makes us important, you know. And, um, but it had lapsed into just being a really a small nothing. And suddenly Micah comes and says, listen, in actual fact, there's going to be a prophecy. I'm going to get, there's going to be an event that the new king of Israel is going to be born here. A new kingdom of Israel is going to come. Now, of course, we who know the Christmas story know and say we're all that about Bethlehem. But we really need to realize that, in fact, in Bethlehem, with the birth of Jesus, the second half of human history began. If you like, human history part two. And uh, let's have a look at how it came about. Luke chapter two. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He travelled there from a village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was who now expecting a child. Am I close here? Good. And while they were there, the, top, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest rooms available for them. Now, I'm pretty sure that you're all aware of the story and understanding what was going on. The background, of course, of what I just read. Rome was the conquering ruler of the world. They were the greatest power that had ever been. For all intents and purposes, they ruled the whole known world. They were the strongest, um, they were the apex of civilization up until that point. But they were also incredibly corrupt and vile. And, and, and it was really, Rome was really an animal that, that wanted more and more, it drew of more and more of the people. It, it, it um, was, was a tyranny. 
and the, the emperor's rules were growing more and more bizarre and they needed more money to buy the, the, the loyalty of the Roman people who were getting um, antsy about the emperor. The emperor had to control and constantly bribe his people and keep them um, happy so he would stay alive, basically. And at this stage, Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor. He was emperor from 27 BC to 14 AD and he had a hunger for wealth. And, and his lust for more and more set in motion the events that would cause, would set up the stage for human history part two to be born in Bethlehem. There was, as you know, as I just read, this young engaged couple had to come from the small Galilean village of Nazareth and go back to the home of Joseph. And part of it was because... It, uh, Caesar, the emperor wanted to know how many exact people he had to determine how much he could demand in taxes from every country that he ruled. And um, so this decision was really made for them. That even though she was so pregnant, they had them go. They had to go from, Galilee, from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, about 175 kilometres. And as I say, to complicate matters, this young woman's pregnant and she's due to have a baby any day. And uh, to really make the, the whole Christmas story, of course, we know that the woman was not pregnant by her, her, by her husband, but by the Holy Spirit. So they made the journey in accordance with the, the uh, demands of Rome, and they moved. And it took them, probably would have taken, they estimate, about a week to make that kind of journey in those days because of the roads and the hardship and everything. And uh, obviously the first thing you do when you arrive in a new town is you've got to find lodging and especially because of the situation that Mary was in. And, and as you read this, I mean, sometimes, again, we can read the Bible and we uh, read it very one-dimensionally and just read the facts. I really want to encourage you to read it and, and kind of think it through, think the implications through. Here's this young couple arriving in this town. They're desperate. She's, she's you know, I mean, she's pregnant. She's got a sore back. Joseph's life is probably miserable right now because he's been told what she thinks about him. And, you know, the whole thing going on there and they come, and they've got to find a room. They've just got to find some relief, and there's no vacancy. I mean, that's a crisis in anyone's book. And to make things worse, suddenly the young woman starts going into labour. And, I mean, there's only one thing this young couple could do. They crept underground. They went to a, uh, a place, a shelter. We would call it a barn today, but it was actually not that. It was a shelter where they stored livestock. And let me be clear that you know, it wasn't a stable like we imagine on we see in our farms today. You know, Christianity has culturally adapted stories to fit our circumstances. And so you know, and we keep our, our, our livestock and barns and, and nice areas, and so we kind of get the Christmas cards with the you know, beautiful picture of a you know, few nice horses and a kind of cow in the corner and, you know, and all that kind of stuff happening on. So it kind of resonates with us and we get, get a grasp of it. But that's not the way it was at all. And if you read the story, there's not even really the, the kindly innkeeper that we've all come to know about who had great compassion. That's not really in the story, if you look at it. But they, they find this barn to go. And they probably, you know, settled in there. Joseph was a desperate man. He had to take care of Mary. And we can't be sure of all the, completely of all the circumstances. The gospel narratives don't spell out what was actually happening to them. But that's why I say, just think about the urgency, the pain. You know, we kind of spiritualise it that it was all beautiful. 
It wasn't. It was gritty. It was real. It was actually happening for them. Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says, And she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There was no guest room. You know, they'd gone back to the village where their families were from, and it was likely that they were probably staying with one of their families, but it just says there were no guest room three. Probably some of the other members of the family had already arrived. I mean, remember that Mary was still under a cloud, and Joseph was still under a cloud because there was still gossip about her. That, you know, she... Things just don't seem to be quite right here. Something's going on. And so there would have been this kind of shame thing. And so she was, they were probably pushed aside and they had to move downstairs to where the house, to the, where the animals were housed. You see, and it's an interesting fact that the chances are that it was probably a cave because in those days around Bethlehem there were lots of caves and a lot of the houses were built above them and the cave underneath was where the animals were kept and looked after. And in fact, you can go there today, I believe, and still see lots of caves. I don't know if anyone's been to Bethlehem and seen that. And it's often a place where the animals were stored. And the manger was a a stone feeding trough. So Jesus Christ was born in the city of David, which was hardly a city, and he was laid in the manger. Now, Christian tradition identifies the cave where Jesus was born. And of course, being good Christians, we built a church over it. (laughs) as we do. It's one of the oldest churches in the world. Uh, Some of the early church fathers, particularly Justin Martin Origen, identified this cave as the cave where Jesus was born. And you can visit the church and you can go down into where, go underneath the ground where the cave where Christian tradition identifies that Jesus was born. As I say, of course, today it's a little bit different. 1,500 years ago it was overlaid with marble, and they put a 14-point star, silver star, around there to identify it. Why 14 stars? Well, you see, if you look at the genealogy from Abraham to David, there are 14 generations. And from David to the exile of Babylon, there are 14 generations. And from the exile of Babylon to the birth of Christ, there are 14 generations. So the number 14 is recurring, and so they've built this as an identification and it's the place where they can commemorate the birth of Jesus. Marble and 14-point star. You know, most of the early writings and the picture have Christ born in a cave. Emmanuel, God with us. The coming of the single greatest event since the creation of man. God came to launch us into human history, part two. To take us from what was to what is supposed to be. To bring us back to that place, if you like, of the garden. And, and, you know, it meant that the whole, at this point, the whole of uh, human history is bursting with possibilities. I mean, you know, the first part of history started with a man. The second part of history begins with a man, the second Abner. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47 says, The first man was the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. The new start of a new race. You know, it says that we are new creations. Our DNA, our seed, if you like, comes from heaven. When Jesus Christ was born in this cave in Bethlehem, the second half of human history began. You know what I mean? We, we all think of that. We, we know we keep track of time, B.C. and A.C., before Christ, and, and I domino, the year of the Lord after that. The birth of Jesus Christ split human history. The second half of history began when Christ was born in a cave. 
Make no mistake about it. When Jesus was born, when the second Adam was born, human history changed. It was a pivotal point. In many ways, it set off an earthquake. One of the songs we sang today talked about the, the shuddering. You know, the word was made flesh, was born in that cave, and it shook the earth. It shook the foundation of all civilization. When the king of kings was born in that cave, it undermined every principality and power. C.K. Chesterton writes this about it. He says, even Herod the Great felt that earthquake under him and it swayed within his swaying palace. In other words, it was so significant. And, you know, it was so powerful. But at that point, it also brings us to another part of the story that sometimes we forget, the dark side of Christmas. I mean, when Herod the Great heard about this king that was going to be born to the Jews, he learned it from the Persian Magi, these astronomers, these astrologers, that had discerned in the night sky that, that a king of the Jews was to be born. When he heard that, he was furious. You see, he was not, even though he was called King Herod, he was not born as a king um, in, in a royal line. He, was, he was an, uh, became king through an, an appointment by Rome. By the Roman Senate, they appointed him. And so when the Magi from the East came and they uh, unwittingly devolved, dev- uh, um, revealed to him that the king of the Jews had been born, man, that just so upset Herod. I mean, Herod was trying to, to finalise his dynasty. He was trying to set himself up as his family, as the kings of, of Israel. And suddenly he hears of this this. this baby that's been born, that is a true king, and the, and the stars told of this, he feels the, the anxiety inside himself. What does this mean for me? What's happening? And he, and he realizes how unsettling this is for his heritage, for, his, for what he wants to set up. This is threatening to him. And, and Herod, who belongs to the principalities and powers of the Roman Empire, who's been set up as a Roman King, he begins, he, he knows that he's got to do something. And that the birth of Jesus Christ imposes a threat to him. It undermines the authority, not only of him, but the powers and principalities of Rome. It actually threatens to topple them. So what happens? He sends the death squads out. Herod sends out soldiers with a ghastly order that in all of Bethlehem, all the male babies, two and under, are to be put to death. And Rachel weeps for her children, for they are no more. The terror of that that event. But an angel warned Joseph, and he packed up his family, and the family became refugees, and they seeked asylum in in a foreign land. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but Jesus wasn't born in a palace, because if he'd been born in a palace, in a sense, he would have been preserving the status quo. See, if Jesus had come to just keep the things the way they were, then he would have been born in a palace as a king of the world. Jesus would have continued to um, support what had been, been the apex of human civilization. So he would have been born in, in Jerusalem or maybe even Rome. And he would have continued along approving what Caesar, Augustus, and the Roman empires, and King Herod, and Caiaphas, and all the rest were doing. But Jesus was not born in a palace to preserve the status quo. He was born in a cave to launch an underground movement. He was born in a cave to birth an underground movement. 
You see, you belong to a subversive underground movement. One that, that challenges the powers and principalities of this world. That is this movement which can overthrow the powers of darkness, which can break off the, the chains of bondage. You see, not only was Jesus born in a cave, but if you think about it, Christianity was born in the catacombs. It's an underground, it's a subversive movement that threatens the powers of darkness. King Jesus was born in a cave and King Herod felt the quake. And you know what? There was another cave, another cave that is gonna be in the life of Jesus. You see, his birth, his entry into human history would begin in a cave and it would appear that the end of his life would also be in a cave because Jesus was buried in a cave, but it didn't end because on Easter morning, there was another earthquake and the old world died and a new world was truly born. The second half of human history had been launched. You know, Micah goes on, he gives us more information about this king who would be born in Bethlehem. He says, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty, oh, I love this, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honoured around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Wow. You know, on Friday, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And you know what? He is indeed, that scripture is fulfilled. He is highly honoured around the world. As Christmas attests, even if people may have lost the full connection of what's going on, we know that every light, every happy holiday, every card, every intention to designate December the 25th as a day set apart is actually fulfilling Micah's prophecy. He will be highly honoured around the world. You know, as I said a few weeks ago, there is no movement, no movement in the world that is like Christianity. Jesus is building a, a um, movement. He's building a community of allegiance to him. And this thing that was born, this, this movement that was born when the baby entered the world, it started in a little way out village that was completely in the backside of the world. I mean, you think about it, Rome was still going on. It was doing all its stuff. And way over in Jerusalem, in Israel, in a small little hick village, a baby's born. And out of that birth, it's going to vibrate throughout the, throughout the known world. Not just for that period, but for the next, every single part of human history is going to be impacted by the birth. Because God has become one of us. God has become one of us. And he affects every single one in every nation, in every, um, on every continent. People are worshipping Jesus. They're giving every ethnicity, the rich, the poor, all around the world. There are people today and over the Sunday who are meeting, who are giving glory to Jesus. They're meeting in, in thousands, they're meeting in ones and twos. But they're gathering together in the house of the Lord because they have believed. They've been baptised and they've uh, pledged their allegiance to Jesus. The scripture says he will be highly honoured around the world. But for me, the most important part of that promise, prophecy is what it says there, and he will be the source of peace. The source of peace. You know, of course, as we've seen in our Christmas prophet Isaiah, the Messiah, the coming one, the Emmanuel, God, the God with us. 
He carries many titles. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And as I said last week, you know, notice a child is born, but the son was given. Given to us. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. You know, and the interesting thing is here, the Micah, the Hebrew, Micah, the Hebrew prophet there, he's not using the English word peace. He's using a rich, wonderful Hebrew word that means shalom. You know, shalom is probably one of the most beautiful words in the whole human language. The Hebrew word shalom. I mean, if you're going to translate it in the one word, then, then peace works. But it's so much bigger. It's so much richer than that. It speaks of complete and total well-being. Do you know that? Complete and total well-being. The implication is that when shalom comes, everything is made right. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is amiss. Everything is set right. And he is the prince of peace. Everything is set right. And at the end of the first half of human history, at the apex you know, of, the, of the Roman Empire, the very peak of man's um, civilization to that point, they had a peace. It was called Pax Romana. It was talked about. The peace of Rome. But I tell you what, it was a fake peace because it was a, a well-being that affected a few at the expense of many. Those who were in Rome, who were citizens of Rome, they, they lived on the fat of the land. They, they experienced a wonderful peace. It was so good. If you were a Roman citizen, you'd be living in your villa. It would be fantastic. But it was only for a few. It was a peace born of suppression and subjugation and bondage and pain for so many people. But on the first Christmas, human history part two began. And in that, when Jesus Christ was born, it was Pax Christi, the peace of Christ and peace that brings shalom, not to a few, but to every single one of us, to the entire human race. We have the peace of God. It is peace on earth and goodwill to men. So I want to encourage us as we go forward, don't live in the dying um, uh, systems of the world that existed before Christmas and are still in the world. But don't submit to that. They're, they're finished. Instead, let us live as citizens of the kingdom of peace because Jesus Christ has been born and we can now know the fullness of the heaven. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. Amen? Yeah, let's stand, shall we? Father, we just thank you that, Lord, we live in a kingdom of shalom, a kingdom of peace. And, Father, we just thank you for that. In fact, Lord, right now I pray. <coughs> Father, I just pray for a, a release of the peace of heaven afresh this afternoon. Right now, Lord, just release it in the name of Jesus over every single person here. Just peace. Peace. Just peace. 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 We pray peace. We release peace. The presence of the peace. The peace and goodwill of heaven. Just right now, peace. Peace of God right now. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, more. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.